like for, I'd like to have you read with me, or along as I read, the 19th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, verses 29 through 40. Today is the beginning of the celebration of the greatest, most sacred season in the Christian church, Holy Week and Palm Sunday, is perhaps the most significant day in the Christian year other than the day of Easter. And I want to begin this celebration with you by preaching a sermon on the day they stopped cheering. Verse 29, And it came about when he approached Bethpage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet. He sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, in which, as you enter, you will find a colt tied, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it, bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Thus shall you speak, The Lord has need of it. And those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and they threw their garments on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their garments in the road. And as he was now approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Two years ago, I stood on the road that led into the city of Jerusalem and tried to imagine what that day must have been like. It was on a Sunday, and Jesus had a few followers, and they got this donkey and brought it to him, the lowliest of the beasts of burden, the very expression of humility and, and, and service. And they put him on it, and they started the parade into town. There were no uh, trumpets, and there were no flags of fanfare, just a few of these disciples, and they began to shout, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the Son of David. And the visitors who were there in the city for the celebration of the season, estimated by some historians to be as many as 200,000, Many came from the Galilee where Jesus had gained enormous popularity and they joined in the chant, in the procession. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the Son of David. And the people who lined the streets took off their cloaks spontaneously and put them in this path. And they took palm branches, the symbols of peace, and cast them before him and the cheering was deafening. And the Pharisees were there, and they were angered. 
And they told Jesus, tell your disciples to be silent. And Jesus said, if they are silent, the very stones in the street will cry out. And it seemed that the cheering would go on forever. But the cheering stopped. The crowds are fickle, you know. Today's heroes become tomorrow's forgotten. It's easy to get a crowd. It's hard to get a commitment. It's not difficult to whip up the enthusiasm of a mob. And their adoration was great. But it's another thing to find a commitment. And only a vital sense of commitment will undergird and support one when the cheering stops. So the cheering stopped. And five days later, the Hosannas turned to crucify him, crucify him, or absolute silence when a defense was needed for him. They misunderstood him. When Jesus talked about victory, they thought of military victory, victory in battle. He thought of a triumphant life and said, To him that overcometh, I will give the crown of life. When he spoke of liberty, they thought he meant political liberty, liberation from the Romans. He thought of the freedom that comes in the Spirit and said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. When he spoke of strength and power, they thought of armed forces and physical might. He thought of the strength of faith and said, And you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit is come upon you. When he spoke of enlarged barters and a greater destiny, they thought of conquest and more territory. He thought of the barriers that come down between men. When he spoke of treasure, they thought of possessions. He thought of the riches of the heart. When he spoke of the abundant life, they thought of a change of circumstances. But he thought, he thought of the vitality of the Spirit and said that a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things that he possesses. And the cheering stopped. Why then and why now? The cheering stops because he demands a decision. Up until this time, Jesus spoke very little about his claims to the Messiah. When he spoke occasionally of these claims, it was just to a few intimate friends, and he often told them not to tell anybody. But now he assumes the role that is predicted by the prophets. It was, as, it was just as, I, as Zechariah had said, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion, and shout for joy, O daughter of Jerusalem, for your king comes to you, and he is just having salvation. Now the claim is made public, and indecision and neutrality are no longer possible. For Jesus is in the process on this Palm Sunday of bringing everything to a head. Everything he says now and everything he does now will result in the cross for with calculated and deliberate step, he is bringing a choice concerning his destiny to the forefront. The moment of decision has arrived. What are they going to do with this Nazarene? It's easy to stand on the sidewalk and cheer him as long as he is hailed as a great man and a doer of good deeds. 
But when the real issue is drawn, when he must be accepted or rejected as the Son of God, the only Savior, the Lord of life, that stops the cheering. I tell you, it is in our recognition that he deserves and demands to be Lord that stops the cheering. I know people, I've known people who have sat in church and have applauded the sermon and they've cheered, as it were, the Christ and they have approved of the music. But when you press them with a decision to make Jesus the Lord of their life, well, that's a different matter. But I tell you this morning that this Jesus of Scripture is a king who must be crowned. And that may be narrow, it may be narrow, but it is a fact indeed that he is never really all to us until we claim him as Savior and we crown him as Lord. And there are hundreds of people this morning who can stand to give testimony that Jesus was never really anything to them until he was everything to them. Do you recall the question that Pilate asked Jesus? It took place in the praetorium. And he got Jesus away from the mob that cried for his blood and took him into the praetorium because he knew no Jew would ever go in there, the Roman, the Gentile area, lest they become defiled and not be able to celebrate the Passover. In the praetorium was this private conversation between Pilate and Jesus. And Pilate said, Tell me, sir, are you really a king? That was the wrong question. The right question would have been, am I willing to make you my king? That's the bigger question. I tell you the great question this morning is not, do you approve of the sermon? Or do you like the music? Nor is it even, what is your opinion of Jesus Christ? The greater question is this, are you willing to make Jesus the king of your life? And I say it with all the fervor I have, my friend, that's the only question. And so the cheering stopped because he demanded a decision about things. Secondly, the cheering stopped because he differentiates love as the way in his kingdom. Now Israel wanted a king, but not like this one. He didn't choose a white horse to ride in his inaugural procession. That's what every conquering hero did, not Jesus. He chose the foal of a donkey. And he didn't dress himself in robes of regality. That's what every conquering hero did, not Jesus. He was a pauper king. And the donkey on which he rode was borrowed. And his throne was draped with the ragged robes of a handful of fishermen. And his attendants were not warriors carrying spears. They were peasants carrying palms. And there were no trumpets to sound his entry, just the low voices of a thousand throats shouting, Hosanna. Now what does all that mean? What is the message of that triumphant, triumphal entry? What did that mean? Well, it was saying that Jesus believed that in his kingdom, the meek, and the merciful were the mighty. 
It was saying that in the kingdom of Jesus, the aggressive and the hostile are feeble. He was saying that the dove's light pinions fly farther than Rome's eagle. He was saying that this kingdom that I'm establishing is a kingdom that is established on the power of love and the omnipotence of mercy. And so Jesus was willing to go to run the risk of love, even though it meant the cross. And the world, even the Christian world, has been slow to believe that there's any power in love. For we are still impressed with force and with might. Wealth to us is power. It's hard for us to believe that there is power in the might, in the, in the, in the meek and the merciful, for we are blinded with power, the force of power. And the foolish and the cross is still foolishness to those who believe in naked power. And it's difficult for us to see that there could be manhood, real manhood, in turning the other cheek for going the second mile. The only power we trust is the power of self-assertion. Get what you need, even if it means violence. And even though there is power in His love, it's not to say there's no power there, because there is power when He came with a whip and chased out the money changers from their own turf. But it is still love. It is still love. And so here comes into Jerusalem this man who would be king riding on a donkey. And he begins to teach that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And he begins to say that if you will be great, the greatest of all, you must be, lo you must be servant of all. And he begins to assume the role of a suffering servant. And they couldn't accept that. Can you? Can you? Are you willing to crown him the Lord of your life who teaches that his way is the way of love and mercy? Because he differentiates love as the way of his kingdom. And because he disturbs the status quo. He disturbed their normal way of living. Now watch this. To insist that Jesus is meek and merciful and mild is not to deny the authority that he asserted because he strode right into their injustice and their shallow religion and said, this cannot be. And he was angry. William Temple said it must have been a scene this Jesus dominated the multitude by the power, by the energy of his righteousness and the righteousness of his energy. He took over and he was angry. You can tell a lot about what makes a man angry, can't you? If you know something about what's, what makes a person angry, you know a lot about that person. It is extremely important to know what made Jesus angry. Now notice that he never got angry when somebody abused or accused him. And he didn't get angry even when they crucified him. For while they were nailing his flesh to the cross, he was praying, Father, forgive them. He didn't get angry at that. But he did get angry when someone other than himself, like a child or an invalid or a sinner, was abused and exploited. He wouldn't tolerate that. 
And he wouldn't stand by and watch one created in the image of God being abused and exploited. He wouldn't accept that. He wouldn't tolerate that. It infuriated him. What about the abused and the hungry and the exploited? Before I came in here for the early service, a man talked, visited with me in the, in, the, in the workroom and told me about a little child, a little kid here, second grade child in Durant school system who was abused sexually by his father. And they put him with foster parents. This, this is in our school. And, and, and he went away to Oklahoma City and he came back and he, he's different. He stares for hours at a pencil in his classroom. They found out he's being abused by his parents now. Two-year-old child, second-grade child, tried to hang himself last week. And we cluck our tongues and we say, what a shame and what a pity. I ask you, what are you doing? What are we doing about the hungry and the exploited and the abused? How can we say that we please a Jesus who would not tolerate that? How can we say that we love when we stand indifferently to those who are being ground under the wheels of life. Not only did he challenge their exploitation and abuse, he challenged the very ecclesiastical system that prevented the unclean Gentile from coming into the presence of the Lord, kept the unclean Gentile from the presence of God. I want you to know where this event takes place the event in the temple in the last week of Jesus' life, where it takes place, it took place in the court of the Gentiles. That may not mean much to you, except the court of the Gentiles was this little area outside, really, the Jewish temple. And it was three feet lower than the level on which the temple of the Jews sat. There was the court of the Gentiles. There was the court of the women. There was the court of priests... Really, it was a place where Jewish men could go for sacrifice. And then there was the holiest of holies where only the high priest could go. But outside this, this, this temple of the Jews was this court of the Gentiles that no Gentile could ever go beyond that or he would be killed. It was, it was at the risk of his own life that he went past the court of the Gentiles. It's important that what went on this last week at the temple takes place in the court of the Gentiles because it was there that Jesus reached out His arms and accepted those who were rejected, those that narrow religion despised. And He reached out His love to those children and women and foreigners and Gentiles and the lame, and He included them that narrow religion excluded should say something to us. Now I know that we're not guilty of the same kind of exclusism, exclusive uh, attitude. We're not guilty of the same kind of bigotry. God forbid, but I ask you, how many of you really have a burden for the disenfranchised and the excluded and the rejected? We may not reject them, but we have no love that includes them. We're guilty. How long has it been since you stretched out your arms and embraced this city with your passion of prayer and concern and the tears of God? And he challenged their 
professionalism, that is, the profession of their lips with a radical call to obedience. Oh, they had the right words. Temple religion knows the right verbiage. And these people came to the temple and they had the right words of praise and adoration. But Hosanna, my friend, is not enough. And he challenged their religious profession with a radical call to obedience. And he said, It's not enough to hail me as the king. Come and follow me. For a profession is not enough. My friend was the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Plainview. He was, he was there prior to Fred Meeks, many of you know. And it's a big, staid, sophisticated church. And he said that, that they were having a revival meeting one spring. And they, were, they invited in a bunch of young people to lead this revival. And he said it was packed out one night with a lot of kids. He said, right in the middle of the service, these kids jumped up and said, Give me a J! And across that big auditorium, they shouted, J, give me an E. And they go, E. He said, give me an E. And he spelled out. He said, what does that spell? And everybody shouted, Jesus, you know, like if I get a football game. He said, it took me about three months to stamp out those fires, you know, that that caused. And he said, the ironic thing was that three months later, I couldn't find a single young person who had led in that chair doing anything for God. I tell you, Hosanna is not enough. To cheer Him is not enough for the response at the deepest level that God requires is not voice service, but radical obedience. It's what the prophet meant when he said, sacrifices and burnt offerings you do not desire, but obedience to my word, to thy word. It's not enough to hail Him with the lip. And so when Jesus began to say to them, Come and follow Me. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And love your enemies. And leave father and mother and brother and sister. And hate your own life and come after Me. They couldn't, they couldn't, they couldn't buy it. You've never heard anything like that before. And I tell you, our salvation is based upon not our applauding Jesus. Our salvation is based upon our decision to follow Him. I must say that again. Our salvation is based upon our decision to follow Him in radical obedience. And when He said that, they stopped cheering. They plucked the palm branches and hailed Him as King early on Sunday. They spread out their garments. Hosanna, they sing early on Sunday. Where now is the noise of their rushing feet? The crown they would offer, the scepter, the seat. For now the king wanders hungry, forgot in the street early on Monday. And you can come early on Sunday and you can spread out your palm branches and hail Him as King. That's not enough. And Jesus said, I 
must be Lord. Follow me. And the cheering stopped. And they took him out on a hill and they crucified him. And they put him in a grave and nobody was there to cheer. And three days later, the grave was empty and the cheering started again. Just a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit here and a little bit there. The cheering started. And for 2,000 years now, with millions and hundreds and thousands of voices, the cheering swells and the cheering grows. And there's coming a day when every tongue shall cheer Him. And every knee shall bow before Him. For God proclaimed Him. Angels acknowledged Him. Saints adored Him. Devils feared Him. And the cheering has begun again. In a little Catholic parish in Louisiana, there was this little Catholic lady, devout Catholic lady. Her mind was all confused, and so she was kept in a nursing center. And she loved to talk. She liked to talk on the telephone. And she'd carry on these, this endless conversation with these imaginal, imaginable, imaginative, uh, whatever the word is, uh, people, imaginary people. And she talked incessantly to them. She was harmless, except she, she occupied the payphone at the nursing center, and, and all the residents there got tired of it. So her priest hit on a great little idea. He got her one of these little toy telephones. And she just talked to these imaginary people day after day. One day he decided he would go by and pay her a call, just check on her. He really didn't have time. He's on his way to a meeting. He just dropped in to check on her. But she got talking. He couldn't get away. She, he couldn't even get a word in edgewise. She just talked incessantly. Finally, he pointed at the phone. He said, Minnie, your phone's ringing. I better go so you can talk. So he slipped out the door while she was answering the phone. He got about three steps down the hall and she appeared at his side with this big smile and twinkle in her eye and she handed him this receiver of that toy phone and said, It's for you. <laughs> it's for you. I tell you, Jesus has come to Jerusalem for you. It's not going to be possible any longer to live in indecision and neutrality. Can't do it. And He has come to Jerusalem for you. And He demands a decision today. Will you claim Him, He says? Will you claim me as Savior? Will you crown me as Lord? It's time to decide. It's for you. And I remind you, 
that if you claim Him and crown Him, His way of life is a way of love and service and ministry. And I remind you that He will disturb you to the end of this day and your day with any other kind of life. He won't let you alone. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son who rode into the city and rides into our heart. Makes claims upon us. Won't let us be content with exploitation and rejection, narrowness. Who commands, demands that He be Lord. And that at the deepest level of our life, He requires to be enthroned. I pray for the decision this morning to accept Him as Savior where that decision needs to be made. And I pray for the courage and the will to crown Him as Lord, where that decision needs to be made. I pray this for the sake of the kingdom of God, and in the name of Jesus.